0: All Hello, everyone, and welcome to the DealMaker show. So today, I mean, I got to tell you, we've done like over 800 episodes of those, but uh, as they say, there's always a first time. And today, not only we have the founder of this rocket ship that we're going to be talking about, but then also we have one of their uh, lead investors, you know, that is uh, joining us too. You know, he's going to be sharing with us, you know, why they thought it would make sense to really join forces with the company and some of the Really interesting, you know, uh, aspects, you know, when when it comes to board dynamics, to how, you know, you think about investment thesis, how, you know, it could align, you know, for you as an investor. And then obviously on the founder side, we're going to be talking about how, you know, everything came together, uh, how they really thought about the uh, really coming, you know, as an entrepreneur, but really having that operational background before, as well as some of the things to really think about, you know, when you're thinking about raising money, because they literally were, Bootstrapping the whole thing, you know, pretty much all the way to 10 million in revenue. Even though they're now at 200 million plus, which is quite a remarkable growth. But without further ado, let's welcome our two guests today, Randall Ward, and then also his investor from SilverSmith, Sri Rao. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah.
1: Thank you, Alejandro. Lucky to be here.
0: So, Randall. Let's let's get started with the origins. You know your personal origins because you were born in Boston. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there?
1: Yeah, life was life was great. You know, looking back, grew up in a small town, 35 minutes west of Boston, called Maynard, Massachusetts. And again, look, looking back, at, you know, 30 plus years later, it was an amazing um, space to grow up because it was a, a working class town, about 10,000 people. But at the center of our town was this old woolen mill, and it was about a 100-year, 150-year-old woolen mill that was converted to be the headquartered town for Digital Equipment Corporation. DEC at the time was the first U.S. software hardware-based company to generate a million dollars in revenue, first U.S. technology company. And so to grow up in that hometown with technology influences everywhere, right? No one had computer labs in their high schools, but we did uh my entire house was littered with deck equipment both parents being engineers and so i grew up in a in a builder town building great technology and what a way to influence the rest of my life now
0: your in your case you didn't even talk about this but the engineering you know mindset you know was fueled early on by building legos without instructions so how 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 was that
1: yeah look dad was kind of cruel back in the day he took the instructions away and made me build off the picture but I've done it to my children since, right? It's a great way to spontaneously just spur creativity and ingenuity and everything doesn't have to look like the picture. And it's good to break things, right? So you have to break things first. So the idea of building off a mold was just never a part of my upbringing. And so a lot of the way that I've learned how to explore.
0: Now, in your case, you know, it took a tiny bit, you know, before you decided to take on the entrepreneurial journey. I mean, it was kind of like a transition from telecommunications to enterprise. And then all of a sudden you find yourself building Upfire. So what were those sequence of events that needed to happen for you to really be like, it's it's my time, you know, to to take a step at this entrepreneurial thing?
1: Yeah, I was lucky to grow up again around technology, writing software from the age of seven on digital vaxes, building Um, in C code, learning and journeying through software. By the age 14, I had written some software that went production. It was used by uh, our local state of Massachusetts. And I heard recently that it's still in production, which is kind of wild to think about. Founder code still being out there and used by a local state government. And so that just flowed me into the world of software. I knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. I knew I wanted to use my hands and build things hardware or software. And I was lucky to have launched into a startup company also out of Boston, a telecommunications business that after working there for two years as engineer number 30, it went public. The company was called Boston Communications Group and it was really a foundational um, building block for me. I learned how to build and scale technology and build and scale business using someone else's capital. Right, I was an operator of someone else's business. And I think that's a great journey, journey person um, way to start in business, no matter what role, what capacity or what skill sets you have, um, because there's just a lot of people that you can learn from. In those days, I was learning in the office around really principled engineers and senior software architects, and they would sit there and look at your code and comment on it and laugh at it and um, make critiques. And you learned a lot. Right. So you broke things first. and, And that's how I scaled.
0: So then let's talk about uh, taking the leap of faith. You know, at what point does the idea of uh, UpFire come knocking to you? And what was the uh, process of going from the idea to incubating the idea further, validating it, and, and then bringing it to
1: market? For me, it was a journey of courage, right? You start with a startup environment. You build that and scale that. I then went to a larger organization where... I wasn't employee 30, I was employee 17,000. And I learned how to build business units and scale business units. And I got closer to the business side of the world than just the pure technology side. I got closer to the customer. I got closer to the go-to-market model. And I was fascinated. I was just learning and exploring, again, in that journeyman model. And in that world, I could break things as well, (laughs) right? It was someone else's capital that I was deploying and learning and growing and changing. And the leap of faith came when I realized I was breaking less, and I had more curiosity to build something where I could get the closest to the customer, where they become my customer. And I went out and I started a technology software company where I was building boutique software. If you couldn't find it off the shelf, I'd build it for you. And I grew that business to about $25 million in revenue. And then it burned to the ground. I brought in some strategic advisors that were wrong for that business and um and we destroyed value slowly over time so it's not like it's a a journey of just success right away um but having filled that business and filled that startup i i picked myself back up sold some software assets and realized i'm not ready to go work for someone else again i want to go try this again take the learning lessons apply them um, learn from the the wounds and and go build another company and at that time, I had come from the enterprise world where software was large and and conglomerate and it was difficult and cumbersome to set up and configure and I realized quickly that there was patterns emerging open source software was starting to emerge Red Hat was um, eating up the world. there was a lot of open source communities and software development companies that were that were building. Um, open-source technology stacks. At the time, I was working for an enterprise company called Vodafone, another telecommunications company. And my day job paid well, and I loved what I I was doing, but I was running home at night to go build software for free. So I'd leave my day job, run home at night, and i go contribute to a library with strangers that I never even met. And so that pattern of software shrinking and becoming smaller was really emerging. And the concept of AppFire was about software shrinking, application shrinking and becoming apps. There was no marketplaces or download stores. There was no Google Play or Salesforce Exchange. There was no Apple iTunes store. But we had this sense and this feeling, my co-founder and I, that software was shrinking and the world, world around us was actually beginning to emerge. And in 2005, we bootstrapped AppFire and we built it as a as a business that would build small applications that could extend other platforms. And fast forward today, we're a a global leading provider of software that extends, augments, and integrates leading platforms like Atlassian, Salesforce, Monday. Um, We work with Slack, and we work with Microsoft Azure DevOps. And so it's it's a world of transformation, but that core concept, that building block, that origin story is still there apps that extend platforms that bring knowledge workers, um, more value off those inherent platforms.
0: Now, in your case, it took uh, some time to, uh, to, to go at it on raising money. You know, in fact, you build a business to to 10 million in revenue, which is, which is amazing. You know, it's, it's very impressive, but also very dangerous too, because you're like uh, walking this fine line and, and you want to make sure that you're not like taking the wrong step. So, so what, what would you say that, uh, that trigger that school of thought, or hey, maybe you know we're gonna delay a little bit more of the thinking about fundraising here.
1: Yeah, to be honest, when we look back at those moments, there was a clear um, delineation of when we knew we needed to raise capital. It wasn't the scary part. It wasn't the part of scaling to ten million and being scared about how do we get to twelve. It was that the stack of sticky notes of awesome problems were building. Every day we had another what we called awesome problem. In the business that we didn't know how to go solve. So for us, first and foremost, this was 2017, when we first thought about raising capital. At that time, we were probably $8 million in revenue, $8 million in ARR, and we, we had this wall of awesome problems we couldn't solve. We needed to build a, a group of people and get a group of people around us that had insight into building and scaling software companies. Not as operators, but as um, investors with advisors wrapped around them. And the world of investment was that oyster. And so in 2017, we began the journey. And it was also a slow march into finding the right investor, right? We were very calculated. We, we've always used time as an asset at AppFire. We're not building for uh, to to quickly ramp and sell this business. Some founders listening today might be building for that, and you can. That's a great, great path. That wasn't our path. We wanted to build a long-term, durable business that's skilled for generations. Build something that's around 50 years from now, 100 years from now. Build something like Digital Equipment Corporation that was built in the 60s off the hard work of people all over the world, generating hundreds of millions of dollars and, and scaling globally. And so for us, it was let's take the time to find the right investment partner. Let's take the time to understand what we want to find.
0: I mean, it took some time because it needed to be 2020 for Sheree to come knocking eh, with Silversmith. So, so now let's, 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 let's get, let's hear the thoughts of Sheree uh, here. I mean, you guys obviously had developed an investment thesis and eventually uh, the company up fire, you know, was aligning with your thesis. I guess before, uh, you go into telling us, you know, uh, how you came across Upfire and why you thought it makes sense. Why don't you give us a quick snap, uh, shot and overview on Silversmith as a as an investment uh, firm?
2: Sounds great. Happy to do that. So, uh, Silversmith is a Boston-based growth equity firm, and uh, we started the firm back in 2015 with a pretty simple uh, goal, which was to identify find, build relationships with, and ultimately partner with entrepreneurs like Randall, building previously bootstrapped companies, uh, software businesses like AppFire. You know, we think the combination of stage and sector uh, are really important. And for entrepreneurs, uh, as you know, really finding that right fit of the funder, the investor that understands the, the awesome problems at that st- stage in the company's life cycle hopefully has relevant experience within that domain in that sector and can help the company scale over time and so we're generally investing in these bootstrap companies when they're tens of millions in revenue let's say and hopefully helping them achieve hundreds of millions of revenue uh, over time and the the group that came together we've been investing in these kinds of companies for you know the entire our entire careers uh, but we thought with a clean slate, what we really wanted to do is to focus. Try to do one thing, do it really well. Focus on these kinds of businesses. Importantly, do it in a really team-oriented way. I think you know one of the unique things about Silversmith is, of course, I'm on this call today. I spend out of our partner group the most time with Randall, uh, which I'm very grateful for. But every deal that we do, every investment we make, is a firm deal. We try to bring the bit, bring to bear the the full gamut of resources, network experience uh to bear with each investment that we make to support these kinds of companies Um, and maybe pivoting to how we got to know randall and and appfire uh, one of the things we've noticed over time as we look for these bootstrapped companies that are able to get to 10 million of revenue without raising traditional venture capital is that they tend to be benefiting from you know some secular tailwinds that maybe allow them to uh distribute products into really large addressable markets in a really cost-effective way. They have relatively low customer acquisition costs and also are able to do it in a way that uh, is efficient from an R&D perspective as well. One common theme that we've seen is that downstream of some really large technology platforms, let's call them big tech, generally speaking, uh, are these entrepreneurial businesses that really fill the gaps that you know find the seams because the reality is that you know no one software vendor solves every problem for every every enterprise and ultimately every enterprise is looking for a bunch of uh, problems uh, to solve or ways to solve those problems and so if they can efficiently find things like the apps that Appfire provides to be able to extend and augment and improve their workflow within a, a product like Jira that's offered by Atlassian as an example, um, they're willing to, you know, try and buy and grow their spend with vendors like that. And so one of the things that we did was to look within the marketplaces of some of these, you know, bigger tech vendors in this case within Atlassian. And the more research and homework that we did speaking with folks at Atlassian studying their marketplace where they've enabled this really, uh, Frictionless buying experience of these apps within, you know, as Randall described, almost like an app store. As we talked to partners in the ecosystem and customers about which apps they really liked, the name uh, AppFire kept coming up over and over again, and it was very clear that it was an emerging market leader within that segment. Uh, so we reached out to Randall and you know came to find that it's exactly the kind of business that we started Silversmith uh, to try to partner with and invest in. That was you know, ten million of revenue that was growing organically, doing so within its means, of doing so profitably, which has kind of come in and out of vogue over the past few years. Um, but I think is is really what we've been, you know, searching for, looking for the whole time. And so, uh, you know, we reached out to Randall, kind of cold outreach, and uh, fortunately he replied and was open to uh, taking a meeting with us, and that was really the start of the relationship.
0: Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here, so. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process, and it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. But that's interesting because typically, especially bootstrap businesses, it's very hard, you know, one, to find them, and then two, to know where they're at in terms of revenue, right? Like uh, those check marks that you guys, you know, have on the investment thesis. So how did up fire, you know, come across your desk, you know, spill the beans, Sri. It's a great,
2: it's a great question. Well, I can't divulge all my secrets, but I'll give you some, Uh, you know, for one, we use a lot of data here at at Silversmith. We're looking at a lot of, you know, private company related uh, data sets to try to get a sense for which businesses are growing. Um, Maybe it's based on kind of number of employees they had one year versus the next year. Um, which ones are maybe of a certain scale, which might be about how many employees they have. These are all proxy metrics, you know, but they kind of help you triangulate at least um, you know where to look. But I think the most important thing is that we try to go deep in a few areas. We're not generalist investors. We're not in lots and lots of markets trying to get up to speed overnight on, uh, on a business. And in this case, we happen to know a bunch of folks at Atlassian um, who were able to be our guides a little bit, our, our Sherpas, and we would go to Atlassian summits, we would attend their events. And again, everyone kept kind of pointing in this direction. So we didn't know when we reached out, we didn't know when we first met that they happened to have $10 million of revenue, to your point, um, but we at least knew it was you know a conversation worth having. And if nothing else, we would learn a lot uh, from those meetings. And fortunately, you know, we learned a lot, but also really enjoyed getting to meet Randall and uh, forming this kind of special partnership.
0: And how were you guys, uh, and, I, and, I, and I'd i like to get both of your guys' thoughts on this, because when they say uh, crystallized, you know, it was COVID, right? And, and navigating, you know, the relationship dynamics there, you know, was probably not uh, easy. So I guess maybe we start with you, Sri. How was that, you know, different from what you were used to, you know, with um, with making investments and then also getting to know the founder and and then we'll pass it on to, to Randall so that he can give his thoughts too.
2: It was a really, really unique experience, uh, but I would say it would not have been possible had we not gotten to know Randall in the prior two to three years. And you know, Randall mentioned they, they kind of set out to find the right partner for the business in a kind of multi-year journey to make sure that there was good alignment, that the new partner they brought on uh, didn't break things, but also could augment things and really help. I think similarly for us, We try to spend long periods of time. We think about them as like really long sales cycles, you know, super enterprise sales. Um, they take a long time to really foster and and nurture, uh, and make sure that, you know, we feel comfortable making a bet on a a founder, entrepreneur, a team that there's good alignment in how to build the business over time in values and, and the important things that, you know, uh, are involved in building a company. And so that foundation that was you know laid out over those prior couple years allowed us to build the trust so that you know once we aligned on a path for okay why does AppFire think it makes sense uh, to raise money now what is the right amount of capital to raise what might be the use of that capital what's the multi-year vision for how Randall wanted to lead the business Uh, that kind of happened in January February. Of 2020, and as we were starting to execute against that plan in March of 2020, uh, this was you know just a couple of weeks after a lot of things shut down in the U.S. is when we signed the term sheet. We had to conduct the rest of diligence, you know, primarily via Zoom. You know, we met up in in some parks and masks, and you know, lots of really interesting things that you know we all had to deal with during that period of time. Um, and so it was a very different diligence process. But again, it would not have been possible had we not built the trust early on uh, to be willing to kind of undertake a diligence process in such a unique period of time.
0: I mean, obviously, trust is is everything, no? So one thing that uh, comes to mind here when it comes to uh, obviously getting investors involved, and and also for the people that are listening to just get the uh, quick overview on Silversmith. You know, we're talking about three point three billion under management, forty five investments, seventeen exits. It's really remarkable track record. I guess now, you know, when we're thinking about bringing investors on board, you know, in this case for UpFire, Randall, I want to ask you, you know, vision is a really big one because ultimately it's what is going to get investors excited, is going to get employees excited and also customers. So if you were to go to sleep tonight and you were to wake up in a world where the vision of UpFire is fully realized, what does that world look like?
1: No, oh, it's an amazing world. I visited it often during the days. <laughs> um, I might even do it right after this, this uh, call with you. You know, it's, it's really easy for me. I've, I, I'll, I'll back up. I, I've always found it um, easy to spend time both in the, in the clouds, but with my feet firmly on the ground. But I encourage all founders to spend and all, all CEOs of software companies to spend some portion of time thinking about where you want to bring the trajectory of the business. It's important to think about what success looks like, and what that time horizon, that time arc is going to be. And if, if I close my eyes and woke up three, five years from now, I know that we are on a continued path of building software, great software for customers all over the globe that extend, augment, and integrate platforms, great leading platforms. Now, what are those platforms? They're the platforms of the future. And where do we play? We play in the space of knowledge workers—the billion knowledge workers that exist today—right against um, top enterprise platforms. And so it's it's one platform begets the next, where we're going to extend our software across them. And that world of the future is where work is flowing for knowledge workers. It's the last mile. When you think about what we do and how we extend platforms. If you're in an enterprise software company and you're an engineer, you're a product manager, or maybe you're in marketing or sales, and you're leveraging an enterprise platform and you have a use case that exists within your company, you might need an app that extends to make that use case a reality. And so for us, we're really fortunate. We sit on that end extension. We know the use case that's being enacted. We know the, the challenge that you're faced with as the knowledge worker or workers, And so that reality for me, that future reality, is a reality where we're in the center. We are the spoke, in the center of all of those major platforms, and we get to see that friction point of work flowing across platforms, and it's an awesome world, right? It's a world where there's always new problems, new challenges to solve. It creates that helper's high. And ultimately, we're engineers solving problems on behalf of our customer that we can see um, intelligently, how they're using these patterns and these platforms. So it's a great world. I want to close my eyes right now and think about it more. <laughs> now, now in your
0: case too, I mean, when you guys um, you know brought in a uh, Silversmith and and now you guys have raised you know close to 150 million. Uh, the, the the level of scale that you've achieved is really remarkable because I mean we're talking about 200 million in revenue now. No, so I mean that growth has been really spectacular. I guess when it comes to growth and when it comes to scale, you know, scaling is not not an easy thing. So, I guess what what would you say has been your biggest lesson when it comes to scale?
1: Yeah, you know, the biggest lesson that we that we find um, with scaling this business is that the customers ultimately are telling us what they want to want to purchase, right? So the closer we're getting to that customer level data about utilization across our software helps us define what we're building next. So making sure that we understand the priority of our customers, how they're using products, making sure our products are easy to use. So they're not only easy to find, but they're easy to use. Um, So we spend less time thinking about spending time in the go to market model, spending time tuning and defining and scaling the go to market model. We spend more time thinking about scaling our software. Scaling our software performance and scaling the needs of the customer, and so I think that's critical for anyone building any product, whether it's software or it's a commodity. Like you can't get close enough to the customer, and so yeah, that scale and growth came um, rapidly. Here we are. May of '20 was when we we signed and brought on Silversmith, 10 million of ARR. Fast forward today, uh, here here we are in early '24, and we are at at uh, 200 million in ARR and and growing and growing repeatably. And again, that durable model was built. It was on purpose. And not only are we growing revenue, but we are a profitable business. I'm wearing a shirt today that says AppFire72 because I just had a board meeting recently where I um, broadcast to our board that we closed our 72nd quarter of profitability. Wow! And so we are, we are a profitable company, which is really important. You know, Tri had mentioned that, profitability and, and and margins gone in, in vogue and out of vogue, but we we don't think in those terms at AppFire, profit is our engine, right? It is driving growth because we can reinvest that capital in the business in many ways, right? And for us, first and foremost, it's on behalf of the customer.
0: Now, one thing that comes to mind there that I'd like to double click and get the input of Sheree is... When you see a company like Upfire you know and you're let's say like investing you know and obviously when when silversmith invested you know we're talking about uh, about a big check you know how do you go about making sure that obviously you're pumping all these millions into the operation, but how do you go about first plugging in your network in a way that is going to serve the company? in the best that he can? But then two, how do you go about making sure that things are not breaking because you're pumping a ton of money and you're like really wanting that company to grow super fast?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think to start at the close of an investment, we take some time to just listen. Uh, we kind of think about it as like the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm, because we're investing in, in great companies that have great teams. And the last thing we want to do is, you know, kind of upend that and so that initial period is almost an extension of the diligence period to really get, you know, inside the four walls of the company, understand what makes it tick, understand what's going great, and understand where they might need some help. And importantly, identify the intersection of where they need help and what we're good at helping with. We are really about partnerships and not about playbooks, because we think each company is very unique in those strengths and weaknesses Uh, but again you know where that overlaps with uh what we think we can be most helpful with these companies tend to have really strong products and a lot of customer pull and customer love and so a lot of times what we're helping with is on the business side uh, the go-to-market model the pricing and packaging Uh, in this case there's been uh, quite a bit of m a activity building out uh, the finance function and reporting And make sure we really understand the business and can start to look around the bend. Because one of the things that happens with scale, to your point, especially rapid growth, is it's very easy to kind of lose sight of maybe something that's wobbling a little bit. And the data can really guide you to make sure that you're making sound decisions, that you're getting ahead of some of those issues, and you're making sure you're supporting the right parts of the organization that that really need that. And so once we understand where those gaps might be, exactly to your point, we look you know deep within our networks to try to identify people who can help the company in those key areas. In this case, with AppFire, uh, one of our independent board members is Cindy Robbins. She was the uh, chief people officer at Salesforce and was at Salesforce for many years as they experienced rapid growth and scale. And so as we've uh, hired a lot of folks at AppFire as we've had to integrate uh, some acquisitions, as we've had to continue to evolve how we you know, manage performance, how we handle compensation, uh, all these things that ultimately are the determining factors to success because it's a very people-driven business. And that's where our IP comes from. That's where our energy comes from. Uh, and as Randall will tell you, it's a very human-centric organization. I think that's enabled our success. You know, Someone like Cindy has really uh, helped the company Maybe avoid some common mistakes uh, and improve on things that maybe were working well at $10 million of revenue, but would not have scaled to $200 million of revenue. So we kind of go through each functional area and each part of the business and try to figure out who might be that
0: kind of a person to help Randall uh, along the journey. So, Randall, I'm going to take you now on a time machine, okay? So I'm going I'm to put you into a time machine and bring you back to, let's say, 2004. You know, that moment where you were starting to think about what the hell you were going to do with your life. You know, now you had to take another attempt, another step at the entrepreneurship. But let's say, you know, you have the opportunity of sitting down, you know, with that younger self and you're able to give, you know, one piece of advice to that younger self before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now?
1: Yeah, look, I, I followed this advice back in 2004. You need to write your vision and mission down on paper. You need to reach agreement. You should enter a business with a partner. So there's a couple of pieces of advice, right? Times are hard. Times are lean. When you're starting up, you need someone to lean on, lean up against, um, and bounce ideas off of so you're not talking to yourself. So those are some good pieces of advice. Break things. It's okay. You're not going to get it off the go like it's not overnight success you hear that a lot i'm sure you hear that from a lot of entrepreneurs if we were planning for overnight success our plan has failed right so just know that you're entering into this space for some period of time it's it's going to be awkward you're going to break things at first but that's part of everyone's journey there isn't a single successful company that exists today public or private that hasn't gone through the same journey that you're going through right now so you tell yourself that as the younger entrepreneur and founder and give yourself that advice, I would surround myself with as many free mentors as you can. You can find them on LinkedIn with a couple of clicks. There are so many entrepreneurs, myself included, that will help and guide and offer time and suggest. And you can get a lot of that. You can also get a lot of it off of podcasts like this. Amazing, amazing information streams that did not exist in 2004 unless I went to a bookstore. And I spent three or four hours and digested the book and may or may not have paid for the book, right? (laughs) And nowadays, here it is. It's all in front of us. There's so many interesting people online that you can meet virtually that have done it and scaled it and have um, found success and also have hit failure points. And so you can learn a lot. So I would tell my younger self that.
0: And, and hopefully that younger self listen, because unfortunately our younger selves, you know, they tend to be a little more dismissive when it comes to advice. But uh, but that was very profound. So, Randall, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so?
1: Look, you can find me on LinkedIn, Randall Ward, App Fire. That's probably the best place. I don't spend a lot of time on X these days, but um, that's just because I'm busy building and scaling a business. Uh, but you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to respond back, and um, yeah, happy to help in any way I can. I also share a lot publicly out there, so you can find things that we write about and talk about at App Fire. And I know Shree's the same.
0: Amazing. And then, what about for Sheree, the companies that are you know now bootstrapping, doing tens of millions? What is the best way for them to reach out to to you guys? Yes,
2: please do. Please reach out at uh, Sri, S-R-I, at silversmith.com.
1: Amazing.
0: Easy enough. Well, hey, guys, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker show today. It has been an honor to have you both on the show today.
1: What a pleasure. Thank you, Alejandro.
0: Thank you so much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers Podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.